Uh, I'm a realist. The Bible says in Psalm 90 that we have 70 or 80 years if we have the strength. So I'm at the midterm, brother. I'm at the midterm. And some of us are on borrowed time today. <laughs> Moses rightly said, teach me to number my days aright that I may, what, gain a heart of wisdom. You're listening to I Am, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. There are two inescapable facts in life. You heard this? Two inescapable facts. Death and taxes. (laughs) Joan Welsh said, though, she said, death and taxes may be inevitable, but death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> I doubt there's a single person here this morning, or maybe you're watching or listening, I doubt there's a single person here who has not been touched or affected, even very personally, by the death of someone dear to you, someone that you love. Someone who's experienced here this morning sorrow and loss and tragedy of losing someone maybe earlier than you thought was their time. Many of us have felt what 1 Corinthians 15, 56 mentions as the sting of death, the sting. Many of us have felt that sting, and we're not really sure what to do with death. Some of us hear the platitudes that people will give us and say, well, they're in a better place, or they're with the Lord, and somehow that helps, but it doesn't really settle the matter in our hearts. As a community, as, as a Western society, as culture, we aren't sure what to do with death. We, we're skeptical about buying life insurance, which seems like an oxymoronic term. Life insurance. Sounds more like death insurance. And many people will, me included, put off writing their will because we're just not so sure if we're ready to organize our estate in my case, because there's not much to organize, um, or in other people's cases, hey, I I just don't want to face the inevitable. We don't even use the words death or perish in our Western context when someone that we love dies. Uh, We say, what, they've passed on, or they've they've passed away. Uh, The words seem to kind of fall out of our vernacular, like cemetery or graveyard, and, and we've all but replaced them with memorial service or memorial park or funeral home. And often the the part of a mortician's job, a big part of their job in the embalming process is, especially with an open casket uh, service, which I've been a part of and had to officiate, a big part of their job is actually applying makeup to a corpse to give the appearance of life, even where there's death. This year, uh, I have come to more fully understand the context of death and the brevity of life and kind of the imminency of the afterlife uh, as my grandfather died and I would say graduated to be with the Lord in glory. I also turned 40 on Friday, uh, which reminds me of two things. First of all, I'm a year closer to the senior uh, citizen discount on coffee, uh, which I'm excited about. I'm the only one, and Ryan apparently. Hashtag AARP. Um, I'm also another year closer to heaven. I'm a realist. The Bible says in Psalm 90 that we have 70 or 80 years if we have the strength. So I'm at the midterm, brother. I'm at the midterm. And some of us are on borrowed time today. (laughs) Moses rightly said, teach me to number my days aright that I may, what, gain a heart of wisdom. I've always learned it 
if you want your days to count, you need to count your days. And so when we think about death, we can't escape it. There's some fascinating stats out there. One out of every one person dies. It's a fact of life. Uh, but many of us are trying to escape it. The founder of PayPal recently um, said that they are attempting some new uh, type of uh, technology. And basically they want to, quote, upgrade the human body. Uh, and through mechanisms such as reprogramming a person's DNA, uh, they want to use nanobots to repair our bodies from the inside out. They want to download the content of someone's brain and then keep it alive after their body uh, has expired. And to that, I say, good luck, Walt Disney, good luck. No matter how much we try to escape it, death is a reality for all of us. And yet, even this morning, even as believers in Jesus, there still isn't there kind of a denial. There's kind of a fear, maybe an ignorance in the true sense of that word when it comes to the inevitable. Now, I want us for a minute as we consider that to think about this section of Scripture in John chapter 11. And, and to rightly observe Scripture, we have to kind of put our, ourselves in the text. We can't try to make it fit into Western culture. We have to put ourselves in the text and in the first century. And I want you to picture what it would have been like to be friends with Jesus. What, what would it be like knowing that someone in your family gets the flu? Well, you don't really have to worry about that because Jesus is about, I don't know, three visits a year from visiting you. You know that he's going to be in the vicinity. And so it's just basically a Jesus visit away from any sickness. You, you don't have to worry about it. Now, I want you to picture being in the first century, knowing Jesus, being a friend of Jesus, and yet your brother becomes deathly sick. You and your sister, you've tried everything to try to remedy his health, but he starts to take a turn for the worst. What do you do? What do you do? Uh, you, you do what any of us do. You send for Jesus to let him know what's happening. It turns out that your brother's a really, really good friend of the Lord. And so you hope that by sending word, Jesus will come and will heal him or pray for him, or maybe from afar, uh, that's certainly a precedent he said before. He could just say the word and he'll be healed. But then the unthinkable happens. It almost seems like there's hope while he's still alive. But then the unthinkable happens and your brother dies. Just imagine what that would have been like. Some of you don't have to imagine very much. You know what that's like. Hit with such a, a wave of loss and sorrow, you're unable to even process it. There's times you can't even breathe. Just, just picture what it's like to, to not even be able to eat, to not be able to sleep, to not be able to talk to people, to not be able to concentrate. Random things come to mind. The, the pain and intensity and the sadness of this moment is just too deep to even comprehend, to even navigate through. There's times you feel numb. There's times you, you feel heavy. And then the next day comes, and then the next day, and then the next day. And your brother at this point has been wrapped in grave clothes, he's been covered in spices, he's been laid in the tomb in a cave where the, the stone has now been rolled in, in front of it. And now, as soon as that stone was put in place, suddenly it hits you, right? The closure, the finality of death. He's gone forever. He, he's not coming back. This isn't a bad dream. The sting of death is felt in this bitter torment that you're now experiencing as your new normal. And then what happens next is regret begins to set in. You start thinking about, wait, why didn't Jesus come? Jesus didn't make it in time. If only, and we all have our if onlys, if only he would have been here. 
Lazarus would not have died. We sent for Jesus. We asked for a miracle. It didn't happen. Now, that is the background of the text that we find ourselves studying today in John chapter 11. And today we're going to see the seventh and the greatest miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. Of course, notwithstanding the miracle of Jesus being risen from the dead himself. Uh, but we've already seen Jesus exerting his power uh, in different ways. So if you're taking note, and the first miracle that he performs, he exerts his power over Judaism by turning the ceremonial water into new and good wine in John chapter 2. Uh, he, in John chapter 4, exerts his power over distance by, uh, in disease by healing the official's son in Capernaum. We saw Jesus in uh, John chapter 5 exerting his power over the Sabbath when he raised up the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Then in John chapter 6, you remember we saw Jesus feeding the 5,000, walking on water. He's demonstrating his power over creation and also being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We saw Jesus in John chapter 9 exerting his power over physical and spiritual blindness when he opened the eyes of the man born blind. And today we're going to see Jesus exerting his power over the grave, the final enemy, as he raises the man from the dead. So we're going to study 43 verses today, uh, and we're going to learn a very simple truth. Only in Christ do we have the hope of resurrection. Can we get an amen on that today? Only in Christ do we have the hope of resurrection. Now, today we're going to cover this section. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to give us the outline, and we're going to cover three big passages, and then make some comments, and then we'll apply them at the end and have a pastor's challenge. We'll sing and go home. So, here's the outline today. Number one, we're going to see the reason for Jesus' lingering, verses 1 through 16. The reason. Why did he linger? Here's the reason. But secondly, the remorse of the loved ones. We're going to see Martha and Mary, and we're familiar with them and how they grieve, how they have remorse, verses 17 through 32. But then we're going to see the power of Jesus over the grave and the resurrection of Lazarus, verses 33 through 44. So let's begin in verse 1, and let's see the reason for Jesus' lingering. Look at verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, pay attention, he whom you love is sick. Okay, so with me, real quick, note with me, verse 1 says that Jesus' friend Lazarus, uh, Lazarus lives in the town of Bethany. Okay, that is about 1.5 miles to the east of Jerusalem on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives. You can see the Temple Mount, the Mount of Olives. There's Bethphage, and there is Bethany. If you don't know what 1.5 miles is, it's basically if you were to leave today and you were to drive south on Lakewood Ranch Boulevard, you would come to the intersection of Lakewood Ranch and State Road 70. That's, one, that's about how far Bethany is from uh, Jerusalem proper. And so we're reminded here by John, notice that Lazarus was someone that Jesus loved. Uh, we're reminded here that he was the brother of Mary and Martha. But notice that Mary and Martha aren't exactly asking Jesus to heal him. But they did include that little part. Did you notice what they said? Hey, Lord, he whom you love 
is sis. That's just kind of a little extra. Like, hey, Lord, the one that you really, really, really love, that guy, he's not feeling well. It's <laughs> just a little bonus. Now, notice verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay? Now, many scholars believe at this point Lazarus has already died. But Jesus knows what is ultimately going to happen in the end. And because Jesus is going to be raising Lazarus from the dead, he can say his sickness is not going to end in long-term death. But it will do something. It will bring glory to God because he says the Son of God will be glorified through it. What, what does he mean by that? The events that are recorded in chapter 11 are going to set in motion some, some unstoppable chain of events. What is essentially going to happen is the religious leaders are going to be set on an unswerving determination to finally kill Jesus. And that means the end result would be that the Son of God would be glorified in his death and resurrection. Charles Spurgeon uh, wisely said, The Lord speaks of things not as they seem to be, nor even as they are in the present moment, but as they shall be in the long run. I'm just so thankful that the Lord doesn't look with myopia, with nearsightedness, but he sees the end from the beginning. Well, we'll come back to that at the end. Look at verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, I love this. Think, think about this. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, had just pointed out that the one whom Jesus loved, Lazarus, was sick. And now in verse 5, we don't see John saying, now Jesus loved this family. No, he says, Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved her sister Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. Isn't this so cool? Jesus, who was well-beloved of the Father, loves each of these family members with their unique and distinct temperament, and he loves them well. And today, you need to know that Jesus loves you. The Bible calls us his beloved children, dearly loved children, uh, by the same writer in 1 John chapter 3. Now, I love my kids. I love them so much. There are times you could say, do you love your kids in that moment? I'd say, yeah, I still love them, um, <laughs> but I love my kids, okay? Uh, everything I do as a father is motivated by my love for them. So if I want to bless them with gifts, it's not because they've earned them, and I'm like, I'm paying you back, son. No, I want to bless them. I love them. If I likewise discipline my children, it is because I also love them, right? When they were younger and I was enforcing discipline uh, a lot more strongly and strictly, our disciplines shifted a little bit, um, I would gently tell them, hey, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care to take the time to discipline you. This is painful for you. It's also painful for dad. Now, my dad used to say that. He used to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I thought, yeah, right. Sure it does. Now I'm a dad. And it's true. It's true. And so when we read that Jesus loved these three, verse 6 is not difficult. It says that when Jesus heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. See, it was love. Don't misunderstand the work of God, guys. It was love that motivated Jesus to allow pain and suffering and loss in Martha and Mary's life. Jesus wasn't motivated here by wrath or by anger or by hatred or by rejection or you get what you, what you deserve. No, it was motivated by love. Uh, we'll see why in a moment, but let's keep reading. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, 
Then after this, he said to the, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Okay, remember this from the last few weeks of study. Jesus' disciples are probably concerned for their own safety, as well as Jesus's. Notice verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Okay? In a figurative sense, Jesus was saying, are there not 12 hours in the daytime? In a sense, what he's saying figuratively is that I have a specific and marked time by the Father to accomplish my work. And while it's light, I'm the light of the world. I've got to do my work. Soon enough, night will come and the work will cease. So while there's time, Jesus isn't worried that he's a wanted man. Uh, he's not on man's timetable. He's not on man's boundaries. Uh, Alfred said this, I have a fixed time to translate this. I have a fixed time during which to work, appointed me by my Father. During that time, I feel no danger. I walk in his light, even as the traveler in the light of this world by day. Now notice verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. All right, so stay with me, church. Jesus was not saying that our soul goes into a sleep-like state of eternity uh, until the day of redemption, okay? That's a false teaching called soul sleep. That's not what's happening here. Uh, remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 said of Jairus' daughter, oh, she's asleep. And that's just kind of a figurative word. Uh, and in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred, and we're told he fell asleep. So the, the disciples, no surprise here, they mistake what Jesus is saying. Like, oh, he's sleeping. Oh, well, let's wake him up from his nap. They don't, they don't get it. In verse 12, the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. He just needed a long nap. That's what you're saying? However, verse 13, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. <laughs> How often did Jesus have to do verse 14? Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I love this. The death for the believer is not the end, but it's more closely connected with sleep than with death. That should give us great peace, great assurance. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. To the sinner, it is an execution, to the saint, an undressing. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors, the commencement of glory. Isn't that awesome? Verse 16, verse 16, we have good old Thomas. I love verse 16. This made me chuckle when I was studying it this week. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, uh, or Didymus, that's why he went as Thomas, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, some scholars believe that that John referencing him as the twin was that he actually physically looked like Jesus. I never knew that before, but uh, some scholars say, yeah, he's called the twin because he and Jesus kind of looked alike. And so he's actually scared for himself that he looks like Jesus. And he's like, we shouldn't go into that area because I could get stoned. <laughs> so notice what he says again, let us also go that we may die with them. <laughs> I don't know if that's the correct interpretation, but you gotta love Thomas, right? He's, he's the goth of the disciples, right? Uh, He's the, there's always an Eeyore with your set of friends, right? There's always that guy. 
the person who's like, oh yeah, let's go die. You know, and, and if you if you don't have an Eeyore in your friends, you're the Eeyore, okay? So <laughs> notice that he says, uh, let's go, we'll, we'll die with him. I don't believe this is a statement of, of despair. I think this is a statement of faith. Thomas is willing to go, even though he may look like Jesus, he's willing to go and die with Jesus, even before he sees Jesus have the power to raise someone from the dead. This is a statement of faith, doubting Thomas. He has some faith. Now, they're on their way. This is the reason why Jesus delayed, to glorify the Father as the Son is glorified in his death and resurrection. That's why this is happening. There's work beneath it. We'll talk about that at the end. But secondly, let's now look at the remorse of the loved ones. Uh, what I want to be looking for as we read through this next section, um, we're going to read through it a little more quickly. I want to look at the difference in temperament and reaction from both sisters. You guys know Martha and Mary. You know how they're rigged differently. And so let's begin with Martha, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb, that's Lazarus, four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, okay? Jesus was wisely waiting until the fourth day. Why? Well, there's a Jewish superstition in that day that the, the soul, they believe, stayed near the grave until about the third day. And then after the third day, the soul would kind of depart and not come back to the body. It's just a Jewish idea. Uh, but Jesus is eliminating even that superstitious thought from even being a factor. Uh, he is now going to demonstrate complete power over the grave, even when it's at its most hopeless moment. Uh, there's many people that happen to be gathered. It says in verse 19, the Jews joined the women. So there's a lot of people gathered around Martha and Mary. And this crowd would have included relatives, friends. And even something that we're not used to, but back in the day, they even would hire people to mourn with you. I don't know how that works out on a job description. You know, I don't know if there's a, if there's a LinkedIn profile for that or a monster, if you can sign up for that. But there happened to be a, a thing. You could hire people to come mourn with you. And so this is a group of people here potentially hired to mourn with them. And um, the time of mourning was several, several days after someone died. Now, notice with me Martha's reaction, verse 20. Verse 20 says, Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. You guys notice with me, there are two different types of grievers. And, and we see the two different types of ladies here, Martha and Mary. Uh, Martha is a doer. Mary is a thinker. Here's a picture that illustrates that. <laughs> the thinker is still waiting. The doer is off doing something. Right? The doer has got to do something. This is Martha. Oh, wait, wait, he's coming. Jesus, i gotta, I got to run to him. i got to, uh, well, let me do the housework. Uh, you just sit there, Mary. Right? Martha. She's the Martha Stewart, so to speak. She's going to get the work done, get the stuff done. Don't worry about it. And then you have the thinker. The thinker says, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ponder. I'm going to cry. I'm going to journal. I'm just going to feel this for a while. Now, I've observed this as people grieve. Some people throw themselves into their work as a Martha. I'm just going to distract, get to it. Or they throw themselves into their children. Or they work on the details of the deceased, uh, the settling of the estate. Or they just busy themselves to avoid the pain. Others, they, uh, others kind of look at 
the person who's sitting and thinking. And from our perception, they seem paralyzed, but they're not. They're actually processing it, and they're contemplative, and they're inward, and they're, they're maybe a little bit overanalyzing, but they're processing every little nuance in their grieving. And I'm not saying there's a right way and a wrong way to grieve. I just think it's interesting we observe these two types of sisters and their temperaments here in the scripture. And yet, what does Jesus do? He doesn't correct them. He meets them right where they're at in their grief. But it's interesting as we read this that they both say the exact same thing, though in a very different way. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. It's a statement of faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, she now waxes eloquent with her theological Bible college training. She says, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And there's going to be a far off resurrection, Lord. I know that that will happen. I know where he's at and I understand that. And yet what does Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus says in verse 25, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother will rise again. Guys, Martha was holding on to the strong teaching promoted by the Pharisees, is popularized in that day but rejected by the Sadducees. She, she knew that one day there'd be a final resurrection, and she was correct. She had her theological doctrine down, but that wasn't giving her hope today. But she was looking at the resurrection and the life as things way beyond us, what Spurgeon calls a dim and misty future. But Jesus was not claiming, like, I have secrets about the resurrection, or I may have resurrection. No, he says, I am the resurrection. And the life. This is not something far off in the future, though that does exist. He says, the hope of the resurrection is right in front of you, Martha. Now, notice what Jesus did not say. This is one of the I am statements. This is what our series is about. We're studying each one of these statements. Notice what Jesus did not say on the screen. I love to do this every time we cover this text. Jesus did not say, I am the zombie and the life. Uh, zombies are popularized today. That's where you, you die and your body is animated and continues to live. He's not a zombie. Jesus did not say, I'm the annihilation in the life. That's what some people believe, where you're, you're completely uh, destroyed, the body's just destroyed. He did not say, I am the reincarnation in the life that many Hindus believe, uh, where you die and then return in a different body, and if you did good, you're going to upgrade, and if you did bad, cockroach, okay? And he did not say that. He did not say, I am the plastic surgery in the life, which is where you have surgery and return in a different body. <laughs> He did not say, I am the cryogenic process in the life, which is where you freeze your brain and then return with a new body. No, he said, I'm the resurrection in the life, which is where you die and return in a physical, perfected, glorified body. See, guys, if we believe in Jesus, we have the assurance that we won't ultimately, eternally die, but will be like him, resurrected bodily for eternity. Jesus' body did not see corruption. That is an Old and New Testament truth that we have to hang to. We have to hang on. It didn't start, his body didn't start decomposing and decaying, but on the third day, God raised him up. And Jesus promises the same resurrection hope for Martha's dead brother, Lazarus, and for you and for me, for all who believe, we will be risen with him. Love that. Love that truth. That deserves an amen. Amen. He will rise.
Jesus will be risen with Christ. Now, that's Martha's response. How does Mary respond? Verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Just a little aside, I love that those ladies refer to him as the teacher. Right? He's a friend, but foremost, he's a teacher. I love that. And so uh, she rose quickly. Verse 30, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying she was going to the tomb to weep there. And they're kind of with her. And then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Isn't that interesting? Same response as Martha, but a totally different posture. You guys follow this? Martha runs to him. She's upright. She's active. Martha falls at his feet. She's passive. She's prostrate. Martha says these words to Jesus' face, whereas Mary cries them at his feet. Martha probably needed to know that Jesus was in control. She's the control freak. Uh, Mary just needed to know that Jesus cared. Uh, in her grief, Martha was able to express her theology. Mary was only able to express her tears. Both sisters thought, if only Jesus had been here. So they both expressed this to the Lord, and we can guess that maybe they had said this to each other uh, as he was dying, as he was slipping into death. And, and maybe the other people mourning alongside them, maybe this is the, the conversation, like, if the Lord, if the Lord had been here, uh, if only, if only. Sometimes we echo that if only, uh, that regret that Martha and Mary express when someone that we love dies, especially if there's suicide. We, we think, if only I would have done something, if the Lord had said something. Now, I don't believe that they're saying this as a rebuke to Jesus' tardiness. If only he would have been here. I don't think this is a blame game. But more, it's an assertion of faith in his power. Lord, we knew if you were here, that he would have been healed. And so, guys, we need to guard our hearts against looking with contempt at the Lord when someone we love dies before we think it's their time. And at this point, apart from the resurrection, there's no true lasting hope for this family, at least in this life. Their brother's gone. This is it. It's final. The tomb has been sealed. But see, that brings us to our third section this morning. And that's thirdly the resurrection of Lazarus. Look at verse 33. It says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Now, there's a lot happening in these verses. Stay with me. Verse 33, uh, the word used for weeping in verse 33, speaking of Mary, speaking of the Jews, is the same word, and it means to wail uncontrollably, to just weep and to wail. Okay, I call it the ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about? The ugly cry where the mascara is coming down and you're not even wearing mascara, where you're turning on Adele. Okay, that type of, of, of really ugly cry. That's the word used here. You ever have one of those? Show of hands. I've had them. I've had those ugly cries, just sobbing, right? But in verse 35, we read that Jesus wept. Okay, shortest verse in the Bible. I actually memorized that when I was 12. I thought, yeah, yeah, all right. 
Doing good. But the word for wept in reference to Jesus in verse 35 is not the same ugly cry, the wailing that the women and the Jews and Mary were um, expressing. The word for wept in verse 35 is more like a controlled and a quiet weeping opposed to the wailing. Jesus wept was more of an internal sympathetic tear. This idea, when they say, look how he loved him, this picture of Jesus weeping shows his humanity, his compassion. Jesus was, according to scripture, a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. Jesus weeping also does something. It dignifies all those who have ever wept. I've said this before. I'm a dude. I try not to show my emotion. I'm not a guy who, who says that I cry often. I mean, we'll watch a show. We'll watch a movie. I try not to cry. But, but sometimes we can downplay that and say it's undignified to cry. It's just a woman thing to cry. No, Jesus weeping dignifies anyone who's ever wept. The scripture says there is a time for mourning. And it is appropriate to grieve. And so if you've lost a loved one, you're not wrong for weeping. You're not wrong for missing them. It's not helpful to hear those platitudes like, well, why are you crying? They were a Christian. And, and you'll see them again. No, Jesus here weeps even though in moments he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He experienced the sorrow and the despair and he identifies with them and he identifies with us in our suffering and in our loss. But notice another thing in verse 33. Notice with me that Jesus, it says, groans in the spirit. This is fascinating to me. In the Greek, this phrase literally means to snort like a horse. Uh, you would use this with horses. And if a horse were to snort, uh, that was the Greek word that was used. Jesus groaned. The idea is implying anger and indignation. Very unusual word. It's an inarticulate noise. Uh, and then we also see that Jesus here was troubled. According to one scholar, the phrase is remarkable. It means to deliberately summon up in himself the feelings of indignation at the havoc that was wrought by the evil one and, and also expressing tenderness toward the morning. Jesus here is angry and he's also troubled. And with salty tears in his eyes and grief in his heart, he snorts at the destruction and the power of the great enemy of humanity, death. But Jesus is about to break that power. John Calvin said, Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes. Let's keep reading verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for days. Uh, just to point out the old King James Version here, Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. I just thought that's fun to say. He stinketh. Uh, verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, verse 41, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and then he said this prayer, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Wow. Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth. Thankfully, he called him by name. Otherwise, everyone would have come forth out of their graves, and everyone would say, wow. Okay. Um, Jesus has already said in John 5.28, jot that verse down and look at it later. John 5.28, he said, an hour is coming when those in the tombs will hear my voice and would rise. Jesus here does not cry out in a loud voice because Lazarus was dead and he had to hear him do it loudly. No, John's using a word that meant loud with authority. And I can't think of a louder, more authoritative voice than one who can call a dead man out of his tomb to resurrected life. Now, even though Jesus had risen Lazarus from the dead, this is kind of crazy. Think about this, guys. Lazarus would one day have the misfortune of dying again. Okay? Think that through. He's not the first fruits of those born again. That's Jesus. Jesus is the first born of the dead, right? Um, I can only think of a few people who are in the dead, risen, dead club in heaven. There's only a few. I may not have all these in the New Testament, but I, I remember there's Jairus' daughter. She was risen and she died again. There's Eutychus. Remember the teenager who fell asleep when Paul was preaching in uh, Acts chapter 20? We always tell the youth group kids, like, Acts chapter 20, youth, you need to learn from Eutychus, right? Don't fall asleep during the teaching. He fell out of the third story window and died. Paul raised him up. Poor Eutychus died again. Um, remember Tabitha? Remember Tabitha? Maybe she was known as Dorcas, which is why she went by Tabitha. Uh, remember she died and Peter prayed for her and she arose, but she died again one day. And then, of course, you could say there's Paul, the apostle. He was stoned, left for dead outside of Lystra, and that's probably where the 2 Corinthians 12, third heaven experience happened. We're not totally sure. Uh, but these are all people who were raised back to life within a few hours or a few minutes of dying. But no one in the scriptures, other than Lazarus, had been dead for four days and raised. This is an amazing, undeniable sign. And we'll begin next week seeing how this sets off the chain of events that will ultimately culminate in the crucifixion of our dear Lord. This is the event. This is the moment when the Jews say, okay, that's enough. He's rising dead people to life. We've got we've to end him. And so this morning, before we wrap up, I want to draw four points of application from this amazing story together. So please take these down. You can take a picture of the screen if you choose to do so. Four points of application from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Number one, to encourage us today, God's delays are not God's denials. Aren't you so glad? Jesus doesn't answer Martha and Mary's petition immediately. He did the same thing in John 2 when Mary asked him to intercede in the wedding details. He did the same thing in John 7 when his brothers who did not believe in him challenged him to go to the feast. Though he seemed to delay in all three of these circumstances, God was still sovereignly at work in his perfect timing. Be encouraged, church. I mean, look at Sonny and Anna. They've been waiting. They've been delayed. And yet God is still at work. What often seems like tardiness or inaction is often a sovereign part of God's plan to bring glory to himself and to draw us closer to him by faith and submission. J. Oswald Sanders put it this way, and he said, God does not always move as fast as we would like, nor does he always explain his mysterious providences. He refused to be 
be stampeded into premature action. His delays may be mystifying, but they are not capricious. His seeming slowness is but the evidence of his perfect control of events. The overriding purpose of his delay was to develop the faith of his friends. Note that the word believe occurs eight times in the chapter. Maybe you missed that. But this chapter so far is about faith. It's about believing. And Jesus did this to spur faith. So God's delays are not always God's denials. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to this application point, and that is that there is no resurrection without death. There's no resurrection without death. Jesus had to wait for Lazarus to die before he could resurrect him from the dead. You and I, in like manner, need to realize that in order for the Lord to do a work of redemption in our lives, there first has to be a death. There has to be a death to self. We, according to the scriptures, have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The scripture says we're buried with Christ. We're also risen with Christ, but it starts with being being crucified with Christ. That's a message we don't preach today at church. We don't say, hey, good morning, I'm going to tell you that you need to die to yourself, right? We say God accepts you how you are, and, and it's fine. And he does accept you, but he also bids you to come and die. He bids you to come and to be crucified with him. One person said this powerful quote. They said, those looking for the deluxe brand of salvation without a cross are more in search of salve than salvation. You can have a religion without crucifixion, but not Christianity. Life in Christ begins with the death of self. Wow. This morning, we need to be crucified with Christ so that we can be risen with Christ. I say that at every baptism. As I'm putting the person under the water, you've been buried with Christ in baptism. And I could leave them under there for a few hours, and then it would be true. You are buried with Christ in baptism. And I always scare them before I do that. I always say, I could do that this morning. And yet you are now risen with Christ. On that note, we are doing a baptism soon. So if you want to be baptized, let us know. And so what an encouragement that we're going to be risen with Christ. But first you have to die. Amen? Isn't that that something to amen today? I need to die. I need to die to self. That's going to save your marriage, by the way. If you're not willing to die to self, you're not going far. Uh, that's how we're going to succeed. I don't like the word succeed because it's misunderstood. That's how we're going to. That's how we're going to be fruitful in the Lord, in our in our workplace, in our community. It's by dying to self. Thirdly, Jesus commands us us to remove the grave clothes. Isn't this cool? Did you notice in verse thirty nine, Jesus commands the people who were paid to mourn the family and the friends and the extended family. He commands them to move the stone. And in verse 44, in the ESV, it says, unbind him and let him go. In the NIV, it says, you take off the grave clothes and let him go. Know with me how Jesus includes, more than includes, he commands those around Lazarus to be involved in helping Lazarus remove what was old and dead. There's a part we have to play in this. He's doing the resurrecting, but we need to be involved in this work. J. Boyd Nicholson said, standing before the grave of Lazarus, whose body was corrupting, the Lord demanded something of those who longed for a miracle. They might have questioned, Lord, you're going to raise the dead. Why not move this heavy stone with but a word or a thought? Herein lies a great principle. The Lord will not do by a miracle what we are to do by obedience. Wow. Is there a stone he wants to roll away? 
Is there some hard and unyielding attitude, someone you will not forgive, some unconfessed sin, some step of obedience he awaits? It is ours to obey. It is his to do the miracle as well. Jesus says, remove the grave clothes. He invites us to be involved in the work he's sovereignly doing. He produces the miracle of resurrection, regeneration, sanctification. But we get to participate by obedience. And and we can be involved not only in our own sanctification, but in helping others around us who need help taking off the grave clothes. That's why discipleship, mentorship, apprenticeship in Christ is so important. We need to pour into others, and we need people to pour into our lives. So... It's important for us to do that. Not finally, number four, what we see as tragedy, God sees as glory. See, Martha and Mary saw nothing in this situation but tragedy. But remember verse four? Remember Jesus's reason behind waiting? Look back at verse four with me. Uh, Jesus says in verse four, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, what we see as tragedy God often will see his glory. And you may not see that glory in the midst of your suffering. You may not see it at the side of heaven. But Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, this light, momentary affliction, even though it feels heavy, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, what was light and momentary grief in Martha and Mary's life was ultimately used in setting up a chain of events that culminated in Jesus being glorified in his death and resurrection. And so often what what we see is tragedy. And I just want to acknowledge, some of you here today may still see your plight, your suffering as tragedy. And and some things are tragic, and, and we do suffer. I'm not making light of that. But I want you to compare it, as Paul says. It's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in and through the Lord. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite the worship team forward to close us in song. And for us to go ahead and get settled. You guys can close your Bibles and get settled. Uh, I want to give us a pastor's challenge this week. And we've been talking about death this morning. So here's a challenge that's unlike many that we do. My pastor's challenge for you this morning on the screen is to face your death with certainty and faith. Here's what I mean. Some of us this morning, young or old, have not come face to face with death yet, but some of us have. And I want to exhort you to meditate on your mortality. I want you to consider, like Moses, how utterly short a breath our life is. And then to look at your life and your afterlife square in the face. I want to challenge you to do that. As Moses would say, teach us to number our days aright. But I want to encourage you not to do it with fear, but to do it with faith. You see, for some of us, this may be the first time that we've truly considered our demise. And rather than approaching it with fear, I want to encourage you as we close today, the death of the Christ follower is so profoundly different than the unbeliever. One person said this, death is not extinguishing the life of the Christian, it's putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. I love that. Lehman Strauss, in his book, When Loved Ones Are Taken in Death, He said, there's some interesting comments about the Greek word departure. 
And he said this. He said, the Greek word departure is used metaphorically in a nautical way as when a vessel pulls up anchor to loose from its moorings and sets sail. Or in a military way as when an army breaks its encampment to move on. In the ancient Greek world, this term was also used for freeing someone from chains and for severing of a piece of goods from the loom. This is what death is as described in the Bible. Here we are anchored to the hardships and heartaches of this life, but in death the gangway is raised, the anchor is weighed, and we set sail for the golden shore. In death we break camp here to start for heaven. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus doesn't just defeat death. He delivers those who are afraid of dying. Jesus is alive. Death was conquered, beaten, and the scoreboard and the stunned fans... Show us that the one who never loses death just got beat. That's what the risen Savior does with death. And so I want to encourage us to face our own death with certainty and faith. You leave church today and say, what, what was the pastor teaching today? Oh, he's telling us to be ready to die. <laughs> what does he know that we don't know? <laughs> Listen, sincerely, guys, I want to encourage you, encourage us, entrust our lives to the one who is the resurrection and life. Is there a future resurrection? Yes, and amen. But Jesus says, but I am today in your midst, right in front of you, the resurrection and the life. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. For more content, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com. Make sure to tune in next time as we continue our study through the Gospel of John in the series, I Am.